Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics Podcast. Today, myself and Professor Matthew Capel are talking about what I've come to refer to as the myth of the barn baby. Yes, this is a time of year when a lot of us, uh, myself included, uh, spend a lot of time celebrating a holiday that centers around a story of a baby born in a manger uh, 2,000 years ago. And we're not. this is not going to be a religious podcast necessarily. But because we have started to really explore the concept of myth and folklore... And because this is a story that continues to have so much impact on so many cultures around the world, and you can debate whether that's good or bad, and that's definitely something we'll, we'll get into some, but I thought it'd be interesting to look at that story itself as a, a piece of myth and of folklore and dive into it from that perspective. So myself and Professor Matthew Capella are going to be doing that, and perhaps this can be entertaining to you if you're someone who celebrates Christmas or someone who just wants to know more because you are dreading having to listen to all that darn music. I will say I like the Wham! song, but other people disagree. That's fine, too. But whatever it is, um, if you're just interested, if you're driving to or from family and want to hear some interesting ideas or, well, well, you're already listening, so I'm not going to try and sell you on listening. I'm just going to have a moment for other people to sell you on why you should buy gifts to celebrate this myth that has to do with gifts, but only sort of. It's kind of an anti-capitalism myth, but it's now become a pro-capitalism story, and I'm just talking way too much, so... Hopefully your Christmas shopping is taken care of, or you have nothing to do with Christmas shopping. I just keep getting worse into wormholes. I'm going to shut up, let the ads happen, and then we'll get back to it. Welcome back. I'm Matthew, your host. I have taken a deep breath. We will have a little bit more time in between words, I promise. And as I said, um, I'm really excited to talk about the story with Professor Matthew and before I even give uh, Matthew a chance to introduce himself and, and give his perspectives on some of this, I want to just say a quick note, which is, obviously we're talking today about a story that has a great deal of meaning to a lot of people in a whole bunch of different ways. And I want to make clear that we're going to be talking about it as myth, as folklore. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't mean, oh, it's just a myth. But I also mean that it is one story among many that a lot of people find meaning and inspiration from. And... If you're a person for whom this isn't a myth, it is a literal true story and it is very important to you that people see it that way, or it is very important to you that people only interpret it in a specific way, this might not be the episode for you. On the other hand, I recognize that a lot of people have been done an awful lot of harm by people who look to this story for inspiration and guidance and wisdom. And I want to honor that and respect that and also say if you're a person for whom any mention of this story for you seems silly or dumb or, or harmful, then again, maybe this may not be the podcast for you. Uh, everyone's welcome to, to welcome. I'm not shutting on out. I'm just saying I want to make clear that we know we're walking a pretty thorny road with this and kind of be clear what, what we're trying to – what's the story – what's the parts of the story we're going to be trying to examine and what's the parts that we're just not going to get into in this podcast. So with caveat after caveat after caveat, let me turn it over to uh, Professor Matthew Cabell. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me again. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you want to introduce yourself a bit and uh, tell us a bit, uh, kind of... Yes. So, okay. Um, I've been on your podcast a couple of times. Um, my name is Matthew Capel. I am a myth scholar. Um, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restate that this time. Um, ordinarily, I would say I'm a myth scholar, and then I would say what myth is. Um, but really, when it comes right down to it, I have a bunch of different graduate degrees, but the one that's important here is anthropology. And what anthropologists would say at this moment is, anything I'm about to say about your beliefs 
I don't mean it about your beliefs, and you should not take anything I say as anything other than me trying to work through ideas, and that there is absolutely no intent ever to criticize the way you see the story of the nativity, because anthropologists just don't do that. Um, right. With that in mind, um, I will also say that while this is about myth, I was um, you and I spoke about this earlier, Matthew. Um, we tend to think of myth as like untrue stories, but really, I will. I was reminded doing research for this particular podcast of one of the most important myth scholars of the last half century, a guy named William G. Doty, um, who signed one of his books for me because he and I did a book together once. Um, and his his um, autograph says this: "Remember, no matter what anybody says, myths are real." Right, and we have to remember that. I really like that word real, because the way I've always seen myths and folklore, including some of these stories, but also a bunch of others, is that these are stories that may not be factual, but they often are true, or they contain truth. And I like the idea of realness as well, that they they hold meaning and, and power for people in, in ways that the, the idea of like, but did it actually happen or not kind of misses out on. Is that kind of a fair sentiment? Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's very good. Um it's the uh, it's the it's the difference between accurate and authentic, I think. Mm, yeah. Like one of the things that we we went over a lot when I was in grad school is the idea that, and again, I'm, this is what I'm remembering from a master's degree twenty years ago. So you know, feel free to give me a C on this oral exam here that I'm in. But <laughs> is that one of the things that gets very hard about studying myths and and stories and fables and the like is that. In today's world, we have a very scientific understanding of the world and the idea that through the scientific method, quite a lot of things are provable and are measurable and, and thus we can determine fact. And that, you know, while people have been doing some level of experimentation and science for thousands of years, a lot of our current understanding that everything in the world can be factually, quantifiably, you know, studied and measured is quite a recent mind mindset and idea. And that, so, so the, the professor who told me this, the professor who taught me this used this example that if you ask an ancient Greek, okay, well, but does a pot, is there actually a chariot that an actual man with laurels around his head named Apollo is pulling and that's why there's a sun in the sky? The person would have looked at you as though you had three heads. Because the question of, is that real is just not something that occurred. Like the, the story of Apollo pulling the, the chariot across the sky is the myth of the sun that helps to explain the sun and it tells you everything you need to know about the sun. But that the question of, but is that true or not, would have just not been part of that thinking. Uh, and that that's, that's an important part of understanding at least ancient mythology. Is that, am I somewhere in the, in the um, uh, neighborhood of truthiness? Yeah, I think so. Um, would, would that professor have been John Shelby Spong? Uh, no, no, that was not. Although uh, Sh Shelby Spong was someone who had similar ideas, to be sure. Yeah. Um, I, I I think you have it exactly correct. Um, you know, before the um, Enlightenment, nobody would argue about the um, virgin birth of Jesus. I mean, okay, in the first couple of hundred years of Christianity, there were heretics who would argue about it, but then they disappear. Right. And then nobody really questions the virgin birth and the nativity until the Enlightenment, because it's with the Enlightenment that we start thinking we can factually prove stuff. So for most of the history of Christianity, 
The idea of a virgin birth was not something you really needed to concern yourself with, other than it gave you an understanding of why this person was important. Right. And, I, and I think that's the important part, that we, we have to make sure we don't forget. Right. <laughs> yeah, that... that, that, that I think so, yeah. And, that, and they're trying to find the... That, that a lot of these myths exist kind of outside of, of fact to some extent. And um, for me, I think that's always helpful, especially because, l like many myths, um, the, the stories of the nativity are ones where we do have... We have very little actual source material in terms of, like, there's a person named Josephus, a, a Jewish Roman historian, who actually doesn't, he writes about the events around the birth. He doesn't say anything about the birth itself. We then have the closest thing to source material is the, the gospel writings, which are written significantly later, a number of Paul's letters and letters of other apostles that were written earlier, make reference to things. So we don't really have any actual source material. But I think even the material we have often contradicts each other. But there again, that's often, pretty, you know, ask, ask someone to find like eight different source materials for King Arthur, for example, <laughs> or for Thor and Odin. Uh, if anyone listened to the Marvel Movie Minute podcast I did about the movie Thor, we read a lot of the sort of ancient Norse and Germanic uh, source materials about Thor and Odin and Loki, and often they contradict each other. And so... I kind of like to just start by asking if you talk about like what is myth and sort of how myth relates to the source material, but isn't necessarily like just that source material. Sure, let's let's define it this way. Um, myth is a story with a very specific point of view, um, and that story is understood by those who hear it as being "quote unquote" true in presenting that point of view. So another easier way to say it might be myth is um, a, a narrative version of an ideology. And in that regard, Marxism is a myth, as is constitutional democracy, um, as is Jesus and um, Buddha um, and Batman and Superman. Um, yeah. They all give us stories that help us as people in a society understand our place in that society and what's important in that society. So the question for the Jesus story um, is, what does the story tell us about what we think is important um, in the life of Christ, in the life of Jesus, let's say, let's not call him Christ right. yet. Um, and. Um, how it does understanding that help us understand both Christianity and our place in the world? Right. Does that make sense? Does if, that seem reasonable? If it's a myth that we want to look to for, for inspiration yes. or the like, or just if we're curious about how other, like the anthropological idea of let's look to how other people, you know, use it and the like. And so let me actually ask, starting by this is, because I think one of the things that, as I've always understood, the academic study of myth, one of the things it points to is that there are all of these common trends and themes, and that you can often trace like a history of a particular trope, or th that, that you can often trace the history of a particular theme or a trope through mythology. And so I'd be curious, tell us more about kind of like the context of the Jesus myth, of the, of the nativity mythology, in terms of like the idea of that we start with the birth of the person who will become the great leader or the great prophet or the great god or whatever it is. Tell, me, tell us more about like just birth narratives and wh where they sort of fit in mythology. Well, when we talk about um, heroes, we always have to, in all myths worldwide, continuously, including the Jesus myth, we have to 
understand why the hero is important. Um, and generally that ends up becoming a story of where the hero came from. And uh, the time of the birth of Jesus, which would have been 4 BCE, right? Um, right. So at the time of the birth of Jesus, birth stories were the way to do this. Um, and in fact, when we talk about that moment in circum-Mediterranean history, we're talking about Rome as much as we're talking about anything. And right. the founding of Rome is a story of a half-god, half-man, fathered by a god, um, guy named Romulus, who founds Rome. Um, and it's right. very much a story that everybody within the empire knows. Um, and it's just, it's just now become an empire, which is something we'll probably have to talk about later. Um, and so in our attempt to understand why a specific hero might be important, quite often the story becomes a story of their youth. Right. Uh, and that can be when it's a really important hero, a story of their birth. But think of it this way, because um, most of the people listening to this podcast are probably in North America. And in North America, we have to deal with the fact that the dominant nation is the United States of America. Um, and the United States has two really important presidents, and they are Washington and Lincoln. And in both of those, both of those individuals, when we talk about them in grade school, we talk about their childhoods. We talk about Washington chopping down a cherry tree and not being able to tell a lie, and that's how you knew he was going to be great. And we talk about Lincoln and the log cabin, and that's how you knew he was going to be great. We give our heroes stories that explain their greatness before anybody else would realize it. So often heroes are obviously heroes as soon as they're born. Sometimes they're secretly heroes, like Luke Skywalker say. Um, this is why Batman is so relevant all the time, because... Um, his childhood defines who he is and helps us understand who he is. His parents being killed is a way of talking about his heroic adulthood. Um, so the virgin birth of Jesus is a way of talking about his heroic adulthood. This is Superhero Ethics Podcast. I mean, Jesus is the first superhero. Mm -hmm. There's no well, way around that. I would say one of the first. I mean, certainly I think you could apply similar ideologies to, you know, um, other stories going even further back. Well, um, I was trying yeah, to be – of the, of the superheroes we still worry about today, nobody yeah. cares about Osiris today, right? <laughs> Gilgamesh and the like. Oh, you know, uh, Abraham and the like. But I, I love the way you're framing that, especially because what I think is really crucial to understanding about the story of Jesus is understanding like that – not only that Roman influence, but the Greek influence, and that as today we record this, this is also the third day of Hanukkah, which is, in some ways, I think understanding the there's a whole bunch of, of, of debate about like how Hanukkah is related to Christmas, and it is by no means Jewish Christmas. Forget all of that. I'm just going to put the two stories into relevance with each other, in that Hanukkah is a, is a story about. When it was when the Romans had not yet taken over that area, it was still the Greek Empire, the Macedonian Empire, and uh, I believe it's the remnants of Alexander the Great's empire, and a, they are among other things trying to force Greek mythology, Greek religion, Apollo and Zeus and all of that onto the Jewish people of the time, and that as the story goes, and again I think this would be another interesting myth to explore and how history and myth uh, overlap, although we know there's a lot of truth to it, a group called the Maccabees 
fought back and and reclaimed the temple. And then the the miracle of Hanukkah is about the the amount of oil that was there to burn and that it was able to burn for eight nights. Um, and that, that's a whole other story. But the point is that around 165 BCE, so less than 200 years before the Jesus stories take place, you have a rebellion by the people in, in Syrio-Palestine in that area of, of people fighting to be able to hold on to Jewish religious practice against the Greeks. And now, less than 200 years later, you again have the Romans now who've supplanted the Greeks, and they have similar mythological structures of, you know, it's now Jupiter instead of Zeus, etc. But it is still this very idea of the kind of person, like the, I guess anthropologized is not a word, uh, anthropomorphized ideas of God, you know, of like Zeus being able to sleep with human women and the like. And, and where I'm going with all this is that part of my understanding has always been, I'm curious to, well, I don't know, where I'm going with all this is that my understanding at least is that one of the key parts of the Jesus mythology is that you in essence have an attempt to merge two different mythological understandings of divinity. There's an attempt to both say that it, it fits all the Jewish myths, but also to convince Gentiles, non-Jews, that this character is divine in a way that fits their understanding of divinity. And so therefore you get this kind of myth that is a merging of Judaism, of Jewish ideas of, of divinity and Messiah and the uh, Gentile Greek Roman ideas of divinity. Yeah, um, and it's. I think it's important um, in everything you said to remember that the kind of Judaism we're talking about is really new. You're right. I mean, Hanukkah is mm -hmm. less than 200 years before this. And Hanukkah is very much a holiday about which form of Judaism is going to be dominant, the Greek form or the non-Greek form. Um, and so... So the version of Judaism, which has become dominant at this point, is really, really new. And when a religion is is really, really new, Judaism isn't new, but this form of it is, um, it's fragile. Um, so right. people tend to be much more um, firm about how they will support their faith. Um, right. Nobody has to really fight for Christianity in Tennessee today, um, right, right? Um, as much as they might want to. Um so, so you've got this. You've got this version of Judaism that is new enough and fragile enough and under attack, um, with a, a Jewish king who's really a puppet king of the Roman Empire, um, and you've got all of this. But at the same time, Judaism has been dealing with trying to figure out how to accept Greek mythology, but also Greek culture for quite some time. Um, so the idea of synthesizing different backgrounds into one person becomes very, very reasonable. Um, and this is where we also go to the Roman state, um, because at this moment, the Roman state has become an empire. Uh, it never really gets named an empire, but it's an empire. Um, and the person in charge is Augustus Caesar. And it's really important to remember that Augustus Caesar was not the son of Julius Caesar. Um, Julius Caesar had a son. Nobody remembers his name. It's easy. It's Caesarea or something um, with, um, uh, uh, you know, from Egypt. Um, but nobody cares about Julius Caesar's actual son. Um, and even Julius Caesar didn't care about him. Julius Caesar cared about his adopted son. Um, and adopted sons are a big deal at this moment in history. And when you say, I have adopted this person as my son, they become the son of. 
Um, so Augustus Caesar is the son of Julius Caesar, even though he's just a nephew um, from our perspective. And calling him the son of Caesar is a really big deal when he is cementing his power. Um, and that's a very standard form at this moment um, outside of Judaic tradition to point out that somebody is important because they've been adopted by somebody important. Right. Which I think is also, uh, I mentioned that there are three of the Gospels that give us a nativity story. The fourth one, Mark, starts with Jesus as an adult, if I remember. And, and part of it is that one of the first things that happens is that Jesus, this man named Jesus, is adopted by God in a way that I think is very reminiscent of that. Um, and that, that's a whole other theological and biblical studies discussion. And again, I'm, um, I, I really hope none of my biblical scholar, my biblical studies professors ever listen to this because I don't know what kind of grade I'm going to get. But um, let me just ask you more about that, though. In terms of the history of myth, is that a common thing for, for a myth to emerge at kind of like a crossroads or a, a melding of two different mythological understandings of something? Oh, yes. Um, it's exactly how... Uh... When two cultures are interacting and becoming more and more one culture, they make sense mm -hmm. of that um, right. because the groups of people have to make sense of the new way of thinking about the world. If they don't, it, the new version of this conglomerate culture does not succeed. Um, so the myth is the thing that gives the story its importance. Um, and I'm sorry, the myth is the thing that makes it possible for um, new cultures to form and understand themselves as new cultures. Right. <laughs> so having yeah. myths of um, the founders in the United States is one of the things that makes the United States possible. It's not just right. the Constitution. It's the stories we tell about uh, Ben Franklin taking nude baths every day and stuff mm -hmm. that give us a shared version of, of history. And that shared version of storytelling is what makes us a people together. I mean, one thing I thought was always interesting in terms of like the study of academia is how the 19th century in Europe is when you really have this rise of nationalism and all these groups that are within different empires, like especially in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you get all this huge rise of nationalism. And at the same time, you get the rise of archaeology and anthropology and, and those kind of things very much as an outgrowth of it. You know, and so for example, you have um, like one thing I thought was fascinating was that the, the archaeological efforts to find the city of Troy were led in large part by Germans who were trying to get the Ottoman Turks to develop a sense of Turkish nationality that was separate from sort of Islamic, you know, so, so instead of seeing themselves as in partnership with all of these other um, Islamic areas, they instead saw themselves as a strong independent nation who could ally with Germany in the coming war. Who could look to Europe. War one. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was such an like, so, yeah, that's that's a, a tangent and a side there. But but, no, but it's a it's a really good tangent. Um, um, if, if for no other reason, um, because the history of Islam is a history of a new religion that does precisely this. I mean, the reason Islam spreads so fast is because you have to read the book in Arabic so the language spreads. Mm -hmm. um, and with the spreading of the, the language, you get the creation of a cohesive Islamic culture that even if people from Morocco and what is today Pakistan really couldn't get along or understand each other, they feel like they're part of the same group. Right. Um, and what the, what Schliemann is doing, what the Germans are doing, is trying to convince the Turks 
don't think of yourself as part of that group because we think Greek history is really important and you're part of that group and that's European. Mm. And yeah. it works. It works really well. That's why Turkey still exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and so going back to the, the story, well, one of the things also I just want to say in terms of like what we're talking about, I do think it's important to note, like I love what you're saying there about how often the like a, a, a new mythology <laughs> emerges when two different cultures sort of interact I think it's important to say that, like, in terms of sort of the the overlap of Roman Greek culture and Jewish culture, that by no means becomes sort of like a happy marriage. And it'll be about <laughs> 80 years later that we get um, a full-on Jewish rebellion that leads to Masada and Diaspora and all that kind of thing. And I think this is a diff- this is a different topic, but one of the things I think is a fascinating about the history of early – the early – one of the things I think is fascinating about the history of what becomes Christianity in the early years is that a lot of it did start as, no, we are just an offshoot of Judaism. We see Jesus as the Messiah as part of Judaism. Oh, wait, all these Jews are being killed by the Romans. No, 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 we're not. We're, we're, we're our own thing. We're different. And so that's a – I'm being a little humorous there, but there, you, you can you can easily tell which of the, of the kind of source materials that, that become the Christian Bible – were written before or after the Jewish rebellion against Rome because of how different their perspective of like we are Jews versus we are Roman and, and all that is. Yeah, very much. We've been we've been for the last year we've been thinking a lot about Ukraine, which makes me think a lot about World War II. And Ukrainians were very much during World War II completely on the side of which army was in their neighborhood that day. Right? right. They were either Soviets or they were Nazis and they didn't care which as long as nobody shot them. Right. Um, and early Christianity had that same problem. You know, how can we present ourselves in a way that will allow us to survive when clearly Judaism is collapsing? Um, right. um, and it, it's a historical curiosity that Judaism doesn't, and like it makes it man. Um, but right. but you, everybody expected. 200 years later that there wouldn't be Jews anymore, um, which is one of the ways in which Jews continue talking about themselves us, um, in an attempt to create a sense of narrative cohesion for their people. Right. Again, yeah, myth makes sense. Yeah. So let's talk about more of the myth itself. We talked about the, the, the birth aspect, obviously, is a, is a common thing. And you mentioned the virgin birth. And wh- where does that come from in terms of like it, it's it's it being a part of mythology that exists in other myths or why you think it is part of this myth? What What's happening there? I have um, I have the same opinion on this as one of your former professors. Um, and uh-huh. that's just because I read him about it and nobody else. Um, but John Shelby Spong, who you had a class with. Um, is Correct. this incredibly great writer of theology. I'm going to call him a theologian, not an apologist. Um, and his argument, and I think it's in his book, Born of a Woman, is essentially it was a defensive way of making sure um, early Christianity could claim to be really special. Um, and when other groups were saying, no, our gods are better than your god, um, creating the virgin birth story helped early Christians prove that their new religion was the right one and the important one. Um, And while I, okay, so I've read a lot of your former professor, but not as an academic, just as a person who really likes his books. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And um, I, I'm, he, by the way, would, would be the first to say he's not an academic. academic so that's yeah, no. Um, yeah, so he was this really great guy who wrote books like Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism, right? Um, a really interesting um, thinker of Christianity um, and a really great writer. Um, I think, I, I guess here's where I would differ from him on the virgin birth. I don't think it's entirely defensive the way he does. Uh, I think it's it's far more the creation of a story that will give meaning to early Christians at a moment in which early Christians are having a difficult time figuring out what constitutes Christianity because it's a brand new thing. And um, what's the name of the guy who wrote the book um, when Jesus, How Jesus Became God? Um, Bart Ehrman, I think is his name, um, who's a Bible scholar. Um, it's a really great book too. Um, put it this way, and he's not a person of faith as I'm not a person of faith. Um, when a group of people have to figure out what keeps them together, it's important to have a really good story. If it's a boring story, it doesn't work. And the virgin birth is a really good story. And it doesn't have to be true to be a really good story, objectively right. true, because it's culturally true. Right. It, it, it's a, it's a, it is a miracle. And I think it is not, in terms of sort of the growth of the Christian story, I don't think it's at all coincidental particularly because so much of, of its particular, the meaning that people attach to it is about the relationship of life to death and, and God's role in that, is that at both the beginning of life and the end of life, you have a miraculous way in which Jesus is different than everybody else. And um, the, beginning of, the, the, the beginning of life and the end of life are the three gifts of the Magi, right? Um, frankincense is the... The um, spice you give to the royals and um, myrrh is a, an embalming spice that you use yep. to stave off the stench of death. Um, so the, the three gifts of the Magi, the, the wise men um, from the east, but more likely from Yemen, um, are, are metaphorical gifts that you would give to a new king um, to right. say you are the king from birth to death. And we can prove it. Here's the gold, because kings need, you know, gold. Um, and frankincense, the spice of royalty, and myrrh, the spice of, of death, um, by which we say you are all of these things, the alpha and the omega, right? I, I have to give out a shout out to all the other um, baby gothlets like myself who first discovered some of their gothiness by how much we loved the verse about myrrh in the We Three Kings <laughs> Because um, it's just a very sort of like, you know, lingering doom. Um, but I, I think what you're saying is really interesting. And I want to, again, put this into context because I think my understanding is that the idea of a god and a woman having a child together, of God basically of a divinity in impregnating a woman. I mean, that's all through um, – you know, Greek and Roman mythology from like Hercules to a lot of how the gods themselves are born, although they're often, uh, with one exception, not born of uh, mortal women. But certainly a lot of the, like, the demigods are all because a god and a woman were together. It's my understanding, though, that like in those stories, if God or Jupiter, you know, impregnates a mortal woman, she hasn't slept with a mortal man, but she still would she she be considered a virgin or was it considered that like a sexual act had taken place just with 
the divinity in whatever weird just form with it. a swan. Well, yeah, I mean, that's my question because I, I'm I, I'm sort of think I'm wondering if there's an extent to which the virgin birth is a way of saying like, yes, this is similar. Hey, Greeks who we're telling the story to or Romans, this story is similar to what you know in that a woman got pregnant because of God. But because this is a different idea, we are we are still holding to this monotheistic idea of God. It wasn't a God who came down and literally had sex with this woman. It still is more miraculous than what you're used to in your myth. So it's sort of a way of taking that Roman idea of the Hercules birth or Pericles or whatever and then putting it back into the monotheistic, non-anthropomorphized idea of, of the story. Is, that, is there any accuracy to that? Oh, no, I think so. I think completely. Um there's the uh, how to put this to a certain extent the birth narrative and maybe we should actually stop and tell the story um, but to a certain extent the birth narrative is propaganda to help help Christianity sure. spread um, and by picking the kind of propaganda that's going to um, endear your new faith to the local hegemonic power is not a bad way to do it right mm-hmm. Um so, um, so by pulling things from mostly, I would say Greek, but other people would say Roman. I just like the Greeks better. Heracles, not Hercules, right? Mm-hmm. Um, by pulling things from that, like, uh, and we all know the list of women that Zeus did not rape is a shorter list than the ones he did, right? Also, very true. Very yeah. true. Um, giving a story that that can be set alongside all of the stories that other people already know makes it much more palatable, palatable. I'm forgetting how to pronounce a word. Um, it makes <laughs> it much, yeah, it, it makes it much more acceptable. Um, right. And and it works very well because there are so many um, people who are born um, of that kind of union. Um, and again, I'll go back to the founding of Rome, right? It's um, the God of war, um, has sex with a woman and she has Romulus and Remus and the God of War says kill them, but they don't get killed. They get raised by wolves and found Rome. Um, and, and every Roman knows that story. So a new God that was created in the same method, but has this one little difference, the virgin virginity, right? Um, and monotheism, I guess, um, makes it not a completely alien story so it can be accepted yeah i mean it's kind of the same as we talk a lot about on this on this podcast about how part of the way these stories work is if i tell you a story about a whole bunch of characters you've never heard of if i'm a very good storyteller you might be really interested in my story but there's a there's a, a barrier to entry there but if i say let me tell you a story about batman but now i'm going to introduce this twist to it well, there's already enough shared common knowledge, as you said, to the mythology of Batman that I can put that twist on it and I'm already that much closer to getting your attention. And so I like the idea of thinking of this in the exact same way. Let me let, let me put it this way. Um, I, I gave you a little story the very first time we talked that is not on a podcast, and it's this. So here's a story about a superhero. Um, the, the rules of local democracy are failing, and the people are... Um, very upset by the fact that democratic systems are not working for them. Um, and those individuals who are supposed to be there to help them, like the the mayor or the police, 
are all corrupt. And the only way you're going to be able to fix this is outside of normal democratic means. So what you need is somebody like a billionaire who can come in and ignore the rules and fix these problems and, and find the bad guys and get rid of them. And that is the story of Batman. And that is the story of Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, and that's why Donald Trump got to be elected president in 2016, because the story fit our story of how superheroes are made. Right. Um, and it didn't matter that it was totally bogus. It just fit the narrative so perfectly for so many people. Right. <laughs> so I, I, I blame that's... Christopher Nolan for the Trump presidency, by the way. Right. <laughs> and I think that's one of the most important things about all these ideas of mythology is that often – like one thing that I'm very fascinated by with the with the Christian mythology, it's how, I think this to some extent happened with Islam and other religions, but certainly Christianity, is how many times when Christians went to a new place as part of missionary work, and let's be very clear, often a lot of it was colonizing by the sword. Uh, and I mean, I'm not defending it in any way or praising it. I'm just acknowledging the, the truth of how this happened. But that often then what they would do is find a version of the local story and twist it just enough to make it fit a Christian narrative. So, for example, if you go to Ireland, where there's kind of a, a re-emerging pagan community built out of a, a, a pre-Christian pagan community that never really was fully wiped out, there's an awful lot of these, like, sacred spaces that they hold to different, like, you know, versions of the goddess, many of which have also – like, so there's Breed, the goddess, is now often – is right next to the shrine of, like, the Saint Saint Bridget, you know, and then all these things have been – my. My personal favorite of these things that I just find funny, but I think is also very illustrative, is there was a, a Polynesian student who went to my college, who went to my grad school because we we're right on the uh, West Coast, and we got a lot of Asian and Pacific Islander students. And one of them explained that he had read the Bible originally in, in his native language, I think it was Samoan, um, and that when the, the missionaries had come there and had translated the Bible into those lo lo local languages, there is no word in a lot of the Polynesian languages for sheep or lamb, because those animals just didn't exist there until white people came. So the Bible describes Jesus as the little piglet of God, um, which is kind of hilarious, as well as uh, gets into odd questions about you know his Jewish origins and all that. Um, but I just thought all that was really interesting in terms of the way a myth starts, but then also will get shaped and changed again and again and again, as you said, part of that propaganda effort. Yeah, the way I do this in my intro anthropology class is West African myth. Um, I think right. of, um, there's a very famous West African group called the Igbo, um, which is spelled I-G-B-O. Um, one of their people wrote a really important book called Things Fall Apart, a very important novel. So that might be the thing people know. But their religion was very much, we have this like um, this immense superior god named Chukwu, who um, is kind of hard to approach, and he's very far out there. Um, and we have a goddess named Allah, who, who, whose womb gives us that which we need and defends and protects us. Um, and then they have like a Lucifer kind of god. And when the um, when the British um, missionaries got there, they were easy, very easily took Christianity and spun it into the stories that the Igbo already had. And now if you go to Nigeria and talk to the Igbo, most of them are Christian, but they still talk about the father, the son, and Mary um, in the way that their ancestors 150 years ago talked about Chukwo and Allah and, and, and their gods, um, because that's how the Christian missionaries made it work. And it worked really, really well. Um, and to a certain extent, that's exactly what the birth narrative is. It's a way of using 
the story of others to convince them that your story fits with it. Well, and so let's now talk more about the birth narrative itself and, and some of the kind of mythological themes that continue to live on. Because I think one of the things that I think is really interesting about myth is the way that often we find some of the same themes in, in many different myths. And often, but also just what do those themes mean in terms of like the meaning we can find them and things like that. And obviously, one of the myths that is one of the mythological elements that I think is very connected to today's understanding of the birth narrative, and, and certainly this is one of the mythological elements that I think is very connected to the birth narrative, is the idea of that it happens in a dark time. And in the original narrative, it isn't in winter, because first of all, it's happening in a place where winter is not... I mean, granted, I'm here in Minnesota, we're about to have a blizzard. <laughs> but even there, you know, it was uh, Judea... Uh, is not the place where you have like the worst winters by any means. And th in that setting, it is the time of taxation. It's the time of, of the emperor and all that things. But it has come to have this idea of, and, and certainly the words that are used in the Gospel of John are the light in the darkness, that the light never dies. That's a mythological theme that we see again and again and again, including in Hanukkah, the idea of the, the little bit of oil that burns far longer than it has. What? Why is that such a powerful mythological element? And what role do you think it plays in this particular story? I'm going to ask you to rephrase that question. I think. Um, sure, I'll, I'll rephrase it a bit. Um, so I'm, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this sort of mythological idea of that even in the darkness there will be a, little, a return of light. That even in the coldest time that there's hope of rebirth and of warmth and all of all that and kind of that, that that mythological idea and how it how it fits in this particular narrative well i i can only be like a kind of a, a i don't know a postmodern social darwinist on this mm -hmm. right um <laughs> in this context not in the actual social darwinism context um myths tend to survive that can as memes reproduce themselves um, and by meme, I mean the technical sense, not the uh, the Facebook sense, right? Ideas that are self-replicating is what a, a meme was right. supposed to be. Um, and a, a story that is nihilistic and it's like, okay, here's the story and everybody dies and now it sucks and you have no hope is not a story you tell your children or and they tell their children. A story of hope always works. I mean, rebellions are built on hope. Right. Um, <laughs> Um, so, so the story of um, finding light in the darkness is always a good story, um, and it's a it's a metaphor that works. It's a metaphor that works cross culturally very effectively, um, especially in the axial age. Um, so, the point in which all of the world religions are being born, sometime between three hundred BCE and and Islam, right where. Um, we're, we're now definitely agriculturalists and we're now living in cities all over the world. Um, and um, we all use fire as one of our main tools. Talking about light becomes a very central thing to understand culturally in the Indus Valley and in, in the Yellow River Valley of China and um, you know in what is now Mexico City. Talking about light becomes talking about life. Um, and, and it works very well. Right. When people argue about 
you uh, you find online the the atheists who like to attack Christianity for stupid reasons, like well, there's other virgin births, or there's other gods who died and were reborn. Um, my answer is always the same. That's not a good argument against a perfectly fine story, because it's the story that matters. So the story of light, the fact that it's a story that you also find in Zoroastrianism, um, in fact, central to it. Um, is a story that works because it connects emotionally to everybody who hears it. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's the, you know, I want to kind of jump in and defend atheists, but I know what you're talking about. It's the, like, we're talking here about just the, the, the story itself and the, every, to me, I've always sort of looked at that or like when people are like, oh, but like a Christmas tree is just taken from, well, yes, every, every religion is probably stealing things from the religions that were around it when it was created. And there's lots and lots and lots of reasons to attack Christianity. And I'm not defending it in any way, shape or form. Um, but but yeah, I, I definitely hear where you're, you're coming from there. And I think that's such an interesting thing because I think that is, I do think it's why it, there's, there's both sort of a power and a danger there because I think that there's a – to me, there's something powerful about being able to recognize either as an outsider or as a practitioner of a religion of like, hey, look at how our religions have similar themes in terms of we celebrate light in the midst of darkness or we celebrate renewal and sort of rebirth in the spring and, and the chance of like forgiveness and starting again in, 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 in different parts of the year and stuff like that. I think it can also, though, be a danger because I think especially in a world like ours, particularly in the United States or other kind of like Western parts of the world where Christianity is so fundamentally dominant, there's a real danger of it thus being, oh, all these other things that are, you know, Hanukkah is just diet Christmas or, you know, Passover is just diet Easter and things like that. So I think, yeah, there's a real, there's real power <laughs> of being able to say – we're not saying this is the Uber story. It absolutely isn't. It has its origins and lots of other stories that came before it. We're just saying let's look at the story as one story among many from, from these mythological perspectives. And, and to be clear, I'm not attacking atheists at all because yeah, I am. No, no, I know what you right, mean. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, that kind of new atheism, I can prove this one little thing wrong logically. Therefore, everything must be a straw man. But no, aren't you? What you're saying is like, um, what's the story? Uh, just a, a quick aside on that. Yeah, I, I do get to mean there because I often find that that brand of atheism is much more fundamentalism and biblically literalism yes. than I am. <laughs> yes, but yes. yeah, it's often like, yeah, I know it's not true. It's that's not the point. But anyway, go on. <laughs> Um, yeah, they're really annoying sometimes, um, especially when you consider the fact that one of the most important one of them is the guy who invented the word meme, right? Um, Richard oh, Dawkins. Um, anyway, what you just reminded me of was the classic story of the Rabbi Hillel, right? Um, like 50 years before Jesus is born, there's a rabbi uh, in Judea. His name is Hillel the Elder, I think. Um, and somebody comes up to him and goes, Rabbi... Um, I have I have the Torah. What's the important thing here? Um, and his response is essentially the golden rule. Treat others as you'd have them treat yourself. Everything else is details. Um, right. And that one little moment of the Rabbi Hillel doing the golden rule is every major religion has that moment. Um, and that golden rule is found in all of them because it's important. Not because one religion got it right and other ones didn't. Right. Though I'll point out that 
I think it's Hillel, but there's my understanding there's a, a Jewish version of it which is very similar, and I think it's Hillel's, but but different in a fundamental way, which is that the Christian version of it is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Hillel's version of it is do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you, which is a very different of like if you don't want it to happen to you, don't assume someone else wants it. As but again, I am a Christian, but I think there, there, I think there can be some real dangers of oh, I would want someone to do this to me. I love hugs, so I'll go up and hug everybody else because they must love hugs too. Um, you know, which I as an extrovert as a child had to learn that's not how things work. Um, but yeah. Let yeah, me turn to okay. as somebody who you, know, you um, also comes from a, a New York Jewish background. I think the difference between those two formulations is also culturally amusing, yes. isn't it? Yes, very, very much so. Yeah. Very, very much so. There's another big sort of mythological element that I think is a key part of the Christian story the, of the birth nativity that becomes the Christian story. That I think is really interesting to talk about because of how it then merges with the capitalist mythology. And, and as people can probably figure out, I'm talking about here about gift giving and the like. Because a narrative that I've always seen in this in this mythology, and here I'll be very honest, I it is part of my religious understanding of the story. So I want to let you as kind of the one who's a little more of an outsider, like poke holes in my theories. But that a key element of this story is to use more modern terms a rejection of a theology of scarcity in favor of a theology of abundance. Because it's a reminder that, like, even when it seems like there's so little, actually, like, God will still give us this gift, not only of light in darkness and of heat in the cold, but of life, of abundance, that new life gets to enter into the world at this darkest time. And... And theology of scarcity, theology of abundance, I've talked about before a little bit, but basically it's this idea of like when you see the world through the eyes of scarcity, that leads to a lot of ideas of, well, if I have, if they have some, it means I have less. And so I have to have more. And if it means they have less, that's too bad. But still, whereas abundance is the idea of there's always more room at the table. There's always enough. There's always going to be enough because we will provide or God will provide or, or the society or community will provide whatever you have. And that there is that core idea of, therefore, of, of generosity and of, of trying to think from an idea of abundance and thus give to others. <clears throat> that, I think, is always going to be have some problems, to be sure. And then at some point in history, probably a lot earlier than we like to think, but especially in the last 200 years or so, the mythology of capitalism, which is a part of which I think would be the more you spend equals the amount you love. And if you spend more money on people, you love, you show that you love more. And then the even more insidious side of if you don't spend as much as everybody else, that means you don't love as much as everybody else. That those two kind of clash and the second one kind of like gloms onto the first one and takes over. And that's a big part of how we get this like, you know, ridiculous amount of consumerism and, and all the rest that is tied into Christmas today. Um, Again, here I'm trying to be an anthropologist. I think I have, I'm come, I'm an anthropologist from inside instead of from outside the tent. So I'm curious how you would see all of this. Well, first off, just to be clear, everybody's an anthropologist, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I may ask you this: What's your favorite Christmas song? Little Drummer Boy. <gasps> Mine too. And why is it your favorite? Because I can tell you why it's my favorite. And I bet you it's the same because we're weirdly alike sometimes. 
It's true. Uh, because it's the idea of that a gift isn't about what you have. It's about your desire to give a gift. And yes. th there is a big, strong uh, feedback loop to it now about uh, – there is now a strong pushback about, you know, a young mother who has just given birth to a child and wants to rest and wants to sleep. The last thing she wants is someone drumming at her. And I acknowledge that. But to me, the story is about um, he doesn't have gifts. All he has is this talent, but he wants to share this talent and that making the baby – like to me – my favorite part of Christmas is giving the gift that makes the people that seeing the smile of someone who I love because I gave them something that 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 makes them happy. And so, I, I've heard that song a million times. I always tear up at the line of "Then he smiled at me." Mm -hmm. pum, pum, pum. Yep. Okay, so I totally agree with you. Um, and I don't know. There, there's there's many good versions. I like the David Bowie version. Um, I haven't heard this, but now I need to. Oh yeah, there's a. Um, BBC version in the 1970s with um, Bing Crosby and David Bowie sing it together. Mm. Um, and it's it's pretty awesome when you think that Bing Crosby was such a dick. Um, <laughs> and, but, but it's beautiful as well. And you get this, like, Bowie was different but definitely re respectful of the tradition of Western music. Yeah. Um, and I just love it. Um, but I just love the little drummer boy. Um, the Christianity is a great myth. Capitalism is a less great myth. Um, <laughs> and, and capitalism is highly problematic. But combining Christmas with capitalism has turned out to be very problematic, right? Um, this previous summer, uh, my, my former mother-in-law passed. Um, and my wife and I went to Florida and went to her funeral because uh, our daughter asked us to. Um, so it seemed weird. Um, and I was a horrible son-in-law. I mean, I was just a horrible son-in-law. Um, I was um, teaching evolution, and she was very much a fundamentalist. And I'd like to point out that I was right and she was wrong, and it's, I was a horrible son-in-law. Um, and I, one of the things I remembered uh, when I was at the funeral um, is they had a small house in Detroit, you know, a three-bedroom kind of ranch house. Um, and at Christmas time, you could not go in their living room because there was no room to walk. Because there were that many gifts. There were so many gifts that you literally could not walk through their living room. Um, and I found that really objectionable. I guess I sort of still do, but not as much as I did. Because I, I came to realize that I grew up really poor. My mother was a janitor and a cleaning lady and really poor. And so the little drummer boy was me, essentially. Um, I now do all of the things in one way or another that she did that I was objecting to. I mean, she was a very devout person, and I'm not. Um, but, you know, I have a great Christmas tree now. And we wrap things that have nothing in them, so there'll be lots of stuff under the tree. Um, yeah. um, I have, like, laser lights shining on the ceiling in green and red um, that are in a wrapped box, just so it looks like a present. So this notion of capitalism and Christianity merging is both you... bad, but also you can see how for a truly devout person, it is also very real and important. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, that's why for me, the starting, from, I, I think one of the saddest parts of how much capitalism has sort of subsumed all of this, and to be clear, I think capitalism is something very much born out of Christianity. So it's not like they are two fundamentally different things. And there's an awful lot of problematicism of Christianity that leads to capitalism. But like there are two stories I can tell about my mother and Christmas that I think are kind of show the two different sides of this because 
to me, that idea of there's always more room at the table, that's, that's for me what I mean about the theology of abundance. And that was something that was always made very clear to my sister and I was that anytime someone didn't have a place to go for Christmas, any of our friends, they came and had Christmas with us. And um, in high school, I had a somewhat um, a love life that would make for a very good CW television show. <laughs> and, you know, my mother just got you. Like, there were times where we'd be in a seminar and be like, oh, no, actually, I broke up with this person. Oh, wait, no, I'm dating there again. And, I, and my mother would just sort of sigh and be like, okay, well, what do they want for Christmas? You know, the first time I told my mother I was polyamorous and that I wanted to bring another partner home, I didn't get any kind of lectures. I didn't get any kind of concerns. The first thing I got was... Oh, well, what does she want for Christmas? And to me, that sense of generosity and love was always something that was so vital to me about what the story is about. Flip side being, after my parents divorced, uh, I, I kind of had half your experience in that my mother had quite a lot of economic struggles. My father did financially quite well. And I experienced something. I've never <laughs> seen someone do no, academic no, no, I, I had that too. Okay. Well, then maybe you know what I'm about to say because – one of the things I think could become the most insidious part of this, especially this idea of the the more you spend, the more you love, is the idea that family members, especially divorced parents with kids, but also other times, have to compete with each other. And I definitely became very aware of times where like my mother was spending far more than she probably should have while like she had holes in her shoes or things like that. And you want to talk about propaganda. I started I, again. I, I wonder if someone's done a study of this. And if listeners, if you know, please let me know. And if not, if you're interested in doing a study of media and commercials, this would be a fun topic. Starting around the early '90s, late '80s, when like divorce was becoming more like divorce was becoming more and more popular since the '70s, but more and more just sex, so, socially acceptable. I started noting that all the Christmas ads for toys always would involve you know the kid getting the toy at Christmas because. You know, no one, everyone was, was celebrating Christmas. Again, that's another part of Christianity's dominant culture that's a problem. But that when the kids would open the presents, they would say, oh, mommy, or they would eat. Most often it was mommy. Sometimes it was daddy. But they would say, I love you so much. And they would run right to the arms of a single parent. And it was very rare that you saw two parents. What you often saw, and there were times where there were, a number of ads I remember it was like, oh, mommy, you're my favorite. Thank you for this, you know, or something like that. And I was always like, oh, there is something so insidious here about this myth that has become about, like, not only do you get to make your child happy, but if you buy this toy, then you get to win. Yeah, I think you're... I had not thought about the commercials, um, and I think uh -huh. that's a really insightful thing to notice, yeah. Um, because... Because it is a competition all too often. Right. Now, now we're, we've gotten pretty far afield on this tangent, though I think it's an important one because of, of the myths of uh, of Christmas that have become so giftized. But I am curious, just pulling it back to that first question, is this idea of the theology of abundance and theology of scarcity, is that something you think you see often in other myths, particularly other kind of like birth narratives? Boy, I'm sure that they exist in birth narratives, but I don't know of any. Um Birth narratives is a thing I've never been particularly interested in. Um, but how many, um, frankly, religious, but we mean myth here, um, mythic stories deal with somehow 
the individual of faith gets what they need when they did not expect to get it. Right. Um, thus Hanukkah, thus, you know, the little drummer boy. Um, that is the, the notion that if you do right, you will get what you need um, is central to every religious tradition I know of. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Um, and in and, and that regard, I, I love the theology of abundance. Um, but um, only American Christians could take the, the theology of abundance and make it prosperity theology. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which. For the uninitiated, word of, of explaining what prosperity gospel is. Yeah, so the prosperity gospel is you can tell Jesus loves you because you're rich, um, basically, um, which goes all the way back to the Puritans. I mean, it's not a it's not a brand new thing, but it's become a new thing in like Texas, um, where many of the churches are located. I'm not making fun of Texas. There's a bunch of them in Texas that do this, mm-hmm. um, which claim quite straightforwardly. That your wealth is a sign that God loves you, um, which has always seemed to be the least, least Christian way of talking about Christianity that I could think of. Right. Um, well, because there is, I, I think, often the theology of abundance is tied to the idea that it's not just for you material things, that it's not just stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and prosperity gospel is the exact opposite of that. And, and the prosperity gospel is selfish. Right. You get to be rich because God loves you. Um, but it doesn't say you need to spread that wealth around. Really. It's the exact opposite. It, it mm-hmm. is the single best way of excusing you from any of the responsibility to care for others because it's a if they're poor, if they're having a hard time, it's because they're not good Christians the way you mm-hmm. are. Which um, makes it a, a religious theological version of social Darwinism, of eugenics, really. Um yeah. Which is the same idea. Um, should we help the poor? No, we should sterilize the poor. Um, it's um, this same trend in Western thought since, mm-hmm. I don't know, since the Enlightenment, definitely since Darwin. Um, the misuse of Darwin and the misuse of Jesus go hand in hand here very effectively. We need to I, cut there, welfare. We need to get welfare recipients off the dole. Um, is the same thing as I don't need to give poor people my wealth because God loves me. That's why I'm wealthy. It's the exact same thing. I recently uh, rewatched my favorite telling of a myth that is not. It is not associated with the religious stories of uh, the birth narrative, but has now become a myth that is very linked to the Christmas story, which is that if you are a rich person, uh, ghosts will terrify you until you start doing good things again. Um, my perfect, my, which I think is a good thing for ghosts to do. Um, but, uh, my, my personal favorite retelling of this, uh, involves Michael Caine and Muppets. Yes. Um, because I think it is both the most, one of the most faithful as well as just fantastic and the music's great and always makes me cry but i remember it one of the things it highlights is the line from the original book of uh scrooge saying <clears throat> well if the homeless die it will decrease the surplus population yep. and i think that's exactly the you know darwin's writing 200 years before 100 i'm bad at math a, a long time before the so the prosperity gospel happens but that's because prosperity gospel is just that theology has been with us forever just in prosperity gospel is just its newest form, you know, and that goes all the way back to the Catholic Church saying, well, we have to have all this like gold and opulence because then people will see that we are blessed by God to the the um, 
the the religious authorities who are puppets of the Romans, who Jesus was protesting against, or who the Maccabees are protesting against, saying because one of the things <laughs> they wanted to do was to take all the beautiful things from the Hebrew temple and bring them to the Greek temple and all this kind of stuff. Like, there's always been that idea, and I think it's it's. You talked before about mythological propaganda. That that's always one of my first questions is going to be, who is telling the myth and how much do they benefit? Because if you're telling a myth that says, no, no, rich people are beloved by God and you're a rich person or you're becoming a rich person through this, like my, my red flags are going to go pretty far high up. If you're a preacher with a private jet. Yeah. Yeah. I have often wanted to go into um, naked churches and start flipping tables all at Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, because it does seem like only so american christianity is different than all christian all other christianity it's a really unique bird um yeah. and we it's important to remember that the rest of the world doesn't do christianity the way americans do um at, at no point would the rest of the world anybody claiming to be a christian anywhere else on earth say um jesus wants me to have guns no place yeah. else um but we get christians doing that all the time right um so our version of Christianity is uniquely our own, and it's also uniquely tied to ca- capitalism in a way that maybe Australia, but otherwise most most Christian traditions are not capitalistic traditions. And we've managed to merge ours in much the way the birth narrative merges Greek and Roman and Jewish traditions. We have taken the birth narrative and the Christian story in general and merged it with our capitalism um, right. to create a story that unites us as a people. Right. And, and I, I will always give the caveat about when we're talking about in America, we're talking about the dominant forms of Christianity, which are very often white Christianity, that, that the Christianities that emerge among a lot of people of color communities, among, among poorer communities can, can be quite different. But yeah, very much agree there. And I think th- there's another podcast we might do at some point about um, the moment when the, the Constantine and, and the moment when a religion that is born out of oppression becomes the religion of the oppressors. Uh, that's a whole other story, though. That's a great um, story, though. Yeah, it really is. What you're saying, though, also reminded me of another story I love that I I think this is factually documented, but it's certainly become among some schools of progressive uh, Christians a mythological story, which is that at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is the – I think that's right. The, it, yeah, that, that, that's Martin Luther King's church. Okay. Yeah, that at Ebenezer Baptist Church, the church that Martin Luther then served – and then I believe um, uh, Reverend Wilcock, uh, uh, Raphael Wilcock serves, um, that the pastor before Martin Luther King, who was a very well-known pastor, was known to be very godly and very, like, you know, theologically minded and very academic and all these great things, that he came like he had been hired, but that the, the day, either the day before or even, like, early in the day of his first day on the job – he basically dressed up in like fairly like, you know, old ripped clothing and sat himself on the bench in front of the church with a little, like little, you know, beggar's cup uh, and, and panhandled and just got all of these like horrible responses of people like, you know, rejecting him or saying bad things about him and all this. And then went up in the pulpit the next day to kind of call that out to talk about that. And it was. I don't even remember what you said about it. That was oh, oh yeah, and and to me, it, like his point was about how much we measure godliness by you know, do you have the nice suit? Do you have the fancy clothing and the jewels and the nice car and all this kind of stuff? The person who did that was Martin Luther King Sr. 
Oh, was it his yeah. father? Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, and thank you. yeah, um, it's perhaps one of the most important stories that comes out of Ebenezer Baptist, which is probably one of the most important churches in American history, right? Um, right. I like I like Junior's one line, um, Martin Luther King Jr. The doctor, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., said once that the most segregated hour in America was um, noon to one on a Sunday. Yep. Um, and And so... When I'm talking about Christianity, you're right. It's important that for the caveat of what I mean is mainline Protestant Christianity, which is a right. which is a thing unto itself. For white I should people. also just point out for those in the mid. One thing I have learned in terms of like myth making and, and religious traditions um, here in the Midwest, at least, you would never, ever, ever have a church service that ends at one o'clock or even ends at noon because the church service on a Sunday has to be over in time for you get football. home to watch football. Yeah. Um, which is also a sacred thing. Well, we've had such a great conversation, and there's a lot more to the story I think that we could go into, especially the whole. Um, but I think we've at least scratched the surface of it quite a, quite a good deal. Are there any other kind of last parts about this story that you wanted to get into? Well, we just had Thanksgiving, and I, I was on your podcast at the time of Thanksgiving. And at the end of that podcast, um, you said something about the traditional story of Thanksgiving being so horrendous. And I didn't interrupt then, but um, I wish I had. Um, so I see th something in both the birth story of Jesus and in American Thanksgiving that both resonate strongly with me, and it is this. Um, in the birth story of Jesus, we have the three magi from the East um, who show up, um, who are specifically referenced as kind of foreign. Um, and um, in the traditional non-truthful but mythological story of Thanksgiving, we kind of do the same thing. And both of them do this, I think, really nicely, which is promote a notion that under the right conditions, multiculturalism is good. Mm. And as American holidays go, that's why I like them. Because yeah. they're about people of different cultural backgrounds working together and celebrating together. And that is... Right the American story we should be telling ourselves every day, I think. Mm. Well, and the la I mean, that last one is quite a can of worms because it opens up this whole other set of questions about what do you do when there are stories that have some fundamentally beautiful meanings as stories, but then once you look deeper into them, you realize, A, the story's a lie, or, or, or once you look deeper into them, you realize, A, that the facts of the situation may not line up with the truth of the myth, which, as we said, doesn't have to matter, but that the facts are so fundamentally different and actually are, are covering up much more gruesome and terrible facts. Because, yeah, I, I'm for me, I don't think about the multiculturalism as much, but I think it is true. But for me, the idea of spending a day to think about what we are thankful for, to think about what we are grateful for, and also, again, the theology of a bunch, like, Let's just, I'm a fat kid. I want to celebrate any way that's a lot of food. Um, and that's what a lot of uh, the holidays I love is and abundance is. But yeah, like I love those ideas of Thanksgiving. But I like if you told me tomorrow that we found some story from somewhere and we're going to try to make a new American holiday that's about thankfulness and about abundance and about bringing people together. And it has nothing to do with what kicks off centuries of genocide. Like I would love that. Um, but I, but I do, I do appreciate what you're saying there. But like, yeah, there is some, the meaning of the story and of the myth that grows out of what actually happened has some real beauty to it, and there's some real value to seeing that. 
even if I might be a little bit more on the side of like, oh, but look at all the bad stuff around it. Yeah. Okay. Well, but but remember, what's the the most significant recent um, holiday invented by Americans is the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. which is a holiday about conquering other people's territory. Right. And and so I will stick with. I know it's not a correct detailing of of what actually happened. But I think it's an important way of thinking about how we should use our past beneficially. Um, in the same way that the, the bridge of the Starship Enterprise in 1968 is a multicultural place. Um, and that's why it's important to me. It, it's interesting, too, because the Super Bowl is to be one of my favorite examples, again, of modern myth making and of different myth structures subsuming things because – you have the Super Bowl story of, as you said, like conquest and a victory and of defeating things. And now for an awful lot of people, like I still like football, but I know there's tons and tons of people who get together for the Super Bowl where they're, they're talking and they're having drinks and they're having food while the game is playing. What they care about is the ads. And that started out as this kind of countercultural, I don't like football, but I still want to be there. So instead, I'll just worship capitalism, you know? So it, it's a thing. Well, well you know, Matthew, one, one more thing. Um, go for it. Well, two more things. One, um, I don't like football, but um, Michigan beat Ohio State. So I love football this year. So I totally get That's that. Important. Um, That's important. But, um, and as we record this, today is the day we're recording this, is the day that um, the announcement of the death of a famous football player happened, Franco Harris, who apparently caught something called the Immaculate Reception. Um, the Immaculate Reception. Which I had never heard of, but I looked it up right before we uh, started recording. Um, and it made me really think about how easily we blended our religion with our football. Um but try it another way. Here's the final story I would like us to think about if we're going to think about Christmas. Um, and Just as a quick aside there on the religion of football, it's why Colin Kaepernick was so hated. He's quite literally a blasphemer. He's a heretic. Oh, my God. You're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of it that way. But that is so – that is exactly correct. Um, so 1968, on Christmas Eve, um, the crew of Apollo 8 is orbiting the moon ten times, um, and they do a Christmas Eve broadcast back to Earth, um, and it's probably the most important of all of the Apollo missions that don't land. Um, and they they read the first chapter of the book of Genesis, but they do it as a Christmas wish for all the world. Um, and the fact that it works so well, that they, they are in orbit of the moon, Borman and Lovell and Anders, um, and they can say, we are three Americans in the middle of the Cold War orbiting the moon in a military industrial complex thing. Merry Christmas. And then read the Bible and everybody on Earth felt good about it is exactly why this holiday is important. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, well, good. As always, Matthew, thank you so much for being a part of these conversations. Uh, love having your feedback. There's so much more we could dive into. Um, but for now, yeah, for people who, who, um, know you and want to, uh, uh, for those who are hearing from you and want to, uh, find more of your stuff, what can they do? Um, just go to, you know, Amazon and buy my books, I guess. Um, um, buy them used. Um, 
five minute used book sales. I don't care. Um, we've been talking about every time you have me on, we talk about myth. My, my first book is on the Matrix movies, but it, I did it with a really famous mythographer who I mentioned earlier, William G. Doty. Um, so, I mean, if you, if you're thinking about your religious background or your mythic background, think about the movies you'd like as well. And, and you'll see what, what your religious background is really telling you. So if you want to find me, I'm on Facebook. Um, that's the only place I am. Um, I'm, I no longer have a TikTok and I no longer have a Twitter. Um, so Facebook, um, Matthew Capel, better for easy it. as pie. There's like three Matthew Capels <laughs> uh, on earth. So, And I am Matthew. I'm the Ethical Panda. You can find me by searching for The Ethical Panda. Um, but most importantly, if you go to theethicalpanda.com, there you'll find this podcast, my Star Wars podcast, uh, which Matthew is often a guest on and will be a guest on many times in the future. Um, this is coming to you at close to the end of the year. There's going to be some uh, changes as we go forward as I'm trying to find more ways to you know, uh, help pay the bills as I do all this, but also to um, find more ways to give you content. Paul and I are talking about new directions things can go in. One thing that's going to probably start happening is we're going to start doing a new segment that in the future may be for patrons only, but that I want to at least give you a, uh, a taste of what that's going to be like, and we'll do that right after this break. Coming right back to you. So what we're going to do in this last segment is uh, often ask our guest, Matthew, in terms of it can be related to the topic we have or just something that you've been like consuming recently, what's – for people who are interested in the conversation we just had, what's a, what's a book or a movie or other things you would recommend as ways that are like kind of similar to these themes or anything we've been talking about? I am going to um, reference a really, really readable um, academic book um, by uh, – couple of really great scholars. Um, John Shelton Lawrence, who is a philosopher, he's a retired philosopher who lives in Berkeley, California now, um, and his friend and colleague, Robert Jewett, who died of COVID a couple of years ago, um, who was a religious scholar, um, a very devout religious scholar. Um, John Shelton Lawrence and I did a book on um, Star Wars called Finding the Force in the Star Wars franchise, which is kind of awesome. Um, but his book with Robert Jewett is called The Myth of the American Superhero, and you can get it for like two bucks used on Amazon or ABE books. Um, and it is a book that talks about everything from Jaws and Star Wars and Rocky to racism and politics and the Ku Klux Klan in mythological ways. And it is really easy to read. It is not That's like awesome. a, an academic book at all. So it's The Myth of the American Superhero, John Shelton Lawrence and Robert Jewett, which I've read a few times, but I just picked up again because I'm using it in teaching. And it's a wonderful book, and I highly recommend it to everybody. Nice. Well, I will look for that. We'll definitely have a link to it in the show notes. And what I recommend is a, a practice that I've come to enjoy more and more, which is that I love – it, the, the idea of the Christmas story and the Christmas movie has become a whole other set of mythology. And there's a lot of great commentary now that for women who are from big cities and have liberal feminist agendas, as you should, uh, if you're going back to your hometown and a very cute man in a flannel shirt starts telling you about the joys of small town life, just ask him where he was on January 6th. That's all we suggest there. But just um, I, one of my – I do love the Christmas Carol story. And, and one thing I would think is really fun sometimes is to look at how the Christmas Carol story is told in different ways. My two favorite versions of it are, as, as said, Muppet Christmas Carol and then Scrooged, which I think is Bill Murray's greatest movie, um, which is a high bar to set. But my point with all that being, watch Christmas Carol versions from all sorts of different points in history because I think it's fun to see 
how our views of that story have changed. I mean, like if nothing else, when Dickens wrote it, the idea that to be a rich man who then used their generosity to give back to the poor was considered the height of moral excellence. Today, I think in a lot of parts of our culture, we're much more critical of the idea that anyone who's rich could be a good person. And, and I think you can see that in the way different versions of the Christmas Carol story have changed. So definitely check that out. And also, if you're on TikTok, Patrick Stewart has created a TikTok. Yes, that Patrick Stewart, where all he is doing is reading in TikTok by TikTok the entire version of Christmas Carol. It's awesome. Check it out. So I'm having myself and Matthew. Thank you all so much. Keep your eyes peeled for all the stuff that's going to be coming new. We're going to have a lot of great ideas for content, making some changes around here. And we're really excited to talk to you about them. And I hope whatever these are for you, have a happy holidays, happy new year, and uh, just keep on listening. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.